So congratulations, uh, you have arrived at the end of our series called Forgotten Virtues. Um, the first week of the series, we talked about the forgotten virtue of honor and what that means to us and what happens when it's not around. The second week, we talked about purity, right? You remember that perfectly. Third week, we talked about the forgotten virtue of loyalty. Yeah, I was just, I, I heard it out there. I know I did. Last week, we talked about that relationally, incredibly significant, powerful virtue of Integrity, good for you. Today, though, I want to talk to you about a virtue that, once again, is almost totally forgotten in this society and in this world that's growing up today. It's becoming like a, like a lost language or an underutilized skill. It's being replaced by outrage culture. And we can always find a way to be outraged at something or at someone, and we would say, fire them, boycott them, don't buy that, vote them out, don't shop there. But we're so unbalanced because as we, as we let people know that they should all be fearing the wrath of our outrage, we do nothing the rest of the time to bring about admiration. And it's extremely rare that you would hear a positive message, a supportive message, when you hear about that going viral. Even if it did, it has to be something big. We have no words for the everyday, but, but you and I, we can do that, right? We can look for ways and means to let our gratitude and our appreciation of the regular, of the mundane, be seen and heard and felt. If we don't, it's entirely possible that we might lose those things, that those things will be abandoned by others as well. So we, we have become known as the entitled generations. And there is persistent political candidating and never-ending lobbying, specific agendas, special interest groups, all clamoring, all expecting, all demanding more, at least more than what I have right now. Many of us, maybe all of us, right? We have come to believe that we deserve more. And you know what's even worse? Those of us who are, you know, a little older, like me, we have to realize that we have been partially responsible for creating by our actions and our inactions and our attitudes. We have created a culture that has fostered these feelings, these expectations and entitlements. And they didn't just appear in a vacuum. They just didn't come from nowhere. So how did we do it? What is it that we were about? There's a number of different things. But for, for one of those things, um, people, again, who are kind of, you know, my age or older, it's very difficult that the average person worked too much. Many, many in our culture often ended up, because of that, also getting divorced. And they love their kids. And they've tried to make up for their lack of time by never saying no. The answer to you is Yes, whatever you want, yes, you can have this, you can have that. I'll make more money, and then we'll be able to give you more. I, will, I want you to be better off than I was when I was growing up. And so we built a system wherein expectations are being constantly catered to, and we traded relational wealth for material wealth, and now that's what people see, that's what they expect, that's what they anticipate. 
So then we set about protecting up uh, ways that we would pr- protect this generation. And when I was a kid, uh, we could ride in the back of a pickup truck, like 18 of us, our friends all there. And anybody can, you remember that? Do you remember like, sitting in the back of there? Nowadays, you're buckled down with 43 belts, 43 different belt buckles holding you safe, protecting you, keeping you from any harm so that you can't even ride a bicycle without a bicycle helmet because today we're going to protect these little darlings. They don't need to be responsible. We're going to do it for them. And so we have an expectation when something goes wrong that it's somebody else's fault. And it goes on. When I was a kid, we actually had to win something to get a ribbon, right? Do you remember when you had to go someplace and you had to win to get the ribbon? But now everybody gets something. And what we have done is we've created this groundswell of a people that really feel entitled. I should be recognized. I should be celebrated. It's not just them, which is easy to point because what I know is it's me. No download speed is fast enough. No app is adept enough at anticipating what I need. And autocorrect? Come on. When, we never count when autocorrect is right, only when, when it's wrong, which is plenty, right? No matter how much wireless coverage there is, it's not enough. High-speed internet was an election issue. It's being treated like a human right. Up there with food, shelter, medical care, people should let me do what I want. And they should all agree with me of their own free will, And I have learned how. I have become skilled at being entitled. And it's a battle. I know how to feel that way now. I know how to be entitled. How about you? Do you regularly think of what you deserve? So today I want to talk to you about the opposite of entitlement. And it is the forgotten virtue of gratitude. Can everybody say gratitude? Gratitude. Yeah. Can you say it again? Well, thank you so much. Luke. Luke was a guy, he was a close friend of the apostles. He was well-connected to, and he, he decided to interview as many people as possible. And when he did that, he was doing it so that he could write an orderly account. And the reason he was writing an orderly account was so that it might make it easier to believe. So Luke is one of the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke are called synoptic gospels, and they run through the life of Jesus in, in a very similar chronological um, fashion. They line up very closely in content, in order, in the statements. And right there, you just got free information. You learned some new fancy words. Synoptic gospel. I just gave that to you for free today. Use it at parties, if you will. So after Luke has talked to all sorts of these eyewitnesses, he writes about a story in the life of Jesus, sort of like one day in the life of Jesus. He says, now on this, on his way to Jerusalem, um, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, 10, he came across 10 men who had leprosy and they stood at a distance and in a loud voice, they called out, Jesus, master, have pity on us. Let me just pause for a second right there, and I want to give you a little bit of context so you can see more of what's going on than it's right on the surface. Um, These guys had leprosy, and leprosy is a disease that we don't deal with very much, but it is one of the most powerful, painful diseases that you can have. Uh, 
You, you may have seen pictures of people with leprosy and they, they look otherworldly almost. They have sores that would just perpetually ooze and they have a sickness that affects all the nerve endings. And so they don't have feelings and the ends, but they have pain inside. And these poor people, they could go to sleep any given night. In the middle of the night, because their sores keep oozing, it attracts animals. And so they could wake up in the morning having found that a rat had gnawed off a finger or a toe. That horror show was incredibly common. And that's the image that people go to, that movie makers frequently go to when they want to make zombies. What do they look like? And that's how they use um, to conceptualize that. So the physical pain is bad. It's persistent. It's ongoing. But according to Leviticus 13, whenever someone who had um, leprosy got close to other people, they had to shout out about themselves, unclean, I'm unclean. So the, the people could turn around and go the other way. They could avoid them. Save yourself because I'm a terrifying sight. So just a really humiliating kind of way to be. And these people, not only were they physically hurting like all the time, but you could only imagine the level of emotional suffering that they were going through, of being shunned for a whole, by a whole culture. So to, to not have that relational contact, that intimacy for years and years at a time. So these 10 guys, they see uh, across the street, the man who has rumored, this guy can heal people. He, he has healed people. And so you can only imagine the way that they, they, they get excited. They look at each other and say, there he is. Jesus, Jesus, please help. And yelling out in public, embarrassing? Not for these people. Better yet, they have a way that they can even clear a path to Jesus to get close if they wanted to. They could be at the greatest moment of their life up until that point. If he hears me, if he heals me, that this could be the miracle, miracle upon all miracles for me. And so they cry out. And when he, he hears them, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. And then they went. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's a miracle. They were healed. Their disease was gone. Their greatest dreams, their most outlandish prayer had just been answered and they could look around at each other and they could verify that it was true. And so the reason that they go to the priest, Jesus says go to the priest, is because the, the priests verify that the miracle happened or that the cleansing actually happened. They are the ones that can now admit you back into society. So the story continues. It says one of them, One of them. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Just hang on a second. You can, just, you can see Jesus. He's almost like dumbfounded by what just happened. Jesus does miracles, and he's done a bunch of them, but he always makes sure that they're known as signs. We call them miracles. He called them signs. Signs. His signs are always there to point to God, our Heavenly Father, our good God. So how would you feel in those circumstances? You were begging. You were crying out. You were in deep distress. Your life was basically nothing. You were, you were just going to survive to try and meek out some sort of meager existence 
all your days basically alone and you cried out and God sent you Jesus right to you and then he performs the miracle of all miracles. And what are you going to do? Are you going to admit that you're like the nine guys? They probably weren't really bad. They probably just wanted to get home to their families. They wanted to say hi to their wife. They wanted to say, look, look, it's okay. We can go forward. I want to be able to celebrate this. I mean, they probably were thinking, I never deserved this disease, right? I didn't do anything to deserve this. I had this healing coming, didn't I? I had earned that. I've been a worthy kind of person. I mean, this is what should have happened. And frankly, this should have happened a long time ago. And it's almost as, they slipped, as if they slipped into this entitled mindset. Only one stopped to give thanks to God for the blessings that he had just received. And my question to you is this. Will you be the one? Will will you be the one? Because truthfully, the odds are against it. They're against you. You think about it. Will you be the one who will daily pause, offer up gratitude and honor to the one that gave you life? Will you be the one to pause amidst all the busyness, not denying it, admitting that there's busyness, but pausing in it to lift up honest, heartfelt worship to your creator, to the one who sustains you, but sustains the entire universe? Will you be the one? It's not about what somebody else will do. Will you? And it's not just with God. Let's just think about it also with the people that impact you. Will you be the one that stops long enough to write a thank you note, to express your gratitude to someone who's impacted you. You can do that right now. I give you full permission. You can go to intoone.ca. We have a page that's set up especially for this. It's called Encourage and Connect. You can write a message on there. Tell us who you want to be sent to, even if you don't have the contact information. We will make sure it gets there. Put their name or put some other sort of way to identify who this person is, and we will make sure that message gets sent to them. You can make a difference. You can do it right now. I give you permission. You don't have to pay attention at all if you're going to do something like that. Will you be the one today to say to those who are ministering to your children downstairs right now, the ones that come faithfully every week and say, thanks. Thanks for investing in my kids. Thank you for serving me and my family. Thank you for giving me the ability to sit here and have a time that can be more for me. Will you stop sometime during this week and thank a coach or, or thank a teacher or, or thank someone maybe who leads your church, like maybe um, your, your governing board or your, your steering committee? Will you be one of those people to stop and show honor and gratitude? Or will you be like most people today? I've got it coming, right? They signed up for it. It's their job. Which one will you be? You may say, you know what, I, I, I'm not ungrateful. I'm, I'm a generally grateful person. And frankly, that's what I like to think too. I like to think that about myself. But as I take the time to examine, as I look back on my life over the last number of weeks, I realize that I can regularly, frequently live with incredible ingratitude. So often ungrateful, but, but even unwittingly, I don't even realize that I'm not being grateful. I feel grateful. I just don't do anything. And I do it in so many ways. Jesus told a story about a guy. He had two sons. Maybe you've heard this story before. One, there's a younger son and there's an older son. And you can see that ungrateful mindset showing up in this story 
Both of these sons display ungratefulness in a different way. So let me just give you a couple quick phrases, and if you're taking notes, you can write this um, down. The first phrase, uh, the first ungrateful mindset, it says, I want it now. Everybody say that. I want it now. When do you want it? I want it now, man. It's kind of exciting. When you get to say that, you get a little bit of oomph behind it. Feels kind of powerful. I want it now, right? I've been so conditioned that I deserve. I demand. And I want it now. And I'm used to it. I know what that feels like. I've heard other people say it, and I'm learning to say it myself. You can see that same attitude in the younger son. It's in this story called the prodigal son. Luke was writing again. And Luke, um, he was writing, he was talking to people who had been around Jesus, good friends of Jesus, who were there at this, at this story. And he asked them, what was it like? And he records what they said. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. I want it now. And traditionally, you receive your inheritance after someone dies, right? But not this guy. I want it now. I want to live my life, and I don't want your rules. I don't want to have to wait. I want it now. I want to do what I want. And I'm basically saying, I wish you were dead. So the father, for whatever reason, gives it to the son. And if you know the story, Luke says he went out and he squandered it. He wasted it. He blew it all. He hired women. He threw big keg parties. He lived wild. He lived unwisely. And he lived self-indulgently. And what took the father perhaps years, perhaps decades to acquire, to accumulate, that ungrateful son totally wasted in a matter of weeks or maybe months. Because why? Because he wants it now. And what's interesting to me is that uh, much of our culture really has this same I want it now mindset. And it shows up in all kinds of different ways. But the ancients once believed that if you did not have the money for something, that you would wait and save. And in that waiting period, in that saving period, you would also grow some anticipation for what was to come. An anticipation that turned into gratefulness when the thing became possible. You would have a more clear understanding of the value of the object because it was not just dollars. It was time. Time to acquire the dollars. Work to acquire the dollars. And that gives you the ability to see that that thing has sweat value. And when you look at it, gratefulness is really a mathematical equation of time, of effort, and anticipation. So you say, well, what does does wait mean? Well, well, wait means that you don't get it now. And I know, that's totally insane, right? Who would actually live that way? Because we've been so trained. We've been so conditioned. And the former a generation conditions, a next generation, and on it goes, that if you want it, you deserve it. And if you deserve it, you deserve it now. And if you don't have it, well, maybe somebody owes you something. Or maybe something's going wrong. I want it, and I want it now. Give it to me now. 
And as most of our culture, you will identify, if you are in debt, because, besides if it was because of a tragedy of some sort, chances are it's because you had this mindset. Does that sort of sound like rude that I just was like invading your space? But this is what is so common in our culture, spending more than you have, buying more than you need. You just got to call it what it is. It's the mindset of being entitled. Second thing is, is, is like it, but it's more like I deserve more. And this was the older brother. And if you know the story, the younger brother, he goes off, right? He blows all of his inheritance. And then one day he wakes up and goes, oh my goodness, that was incredibly stupid. I should never have done that. This is bad. Now I don't have anything. But you know who does? The servants at my, at my dad's place. They got stuff. I'm begging now. I might as well go home and beg. At least I know that there's something there that I can get. And so when he comes back home, we get this picture of the father. And the father in this story that Jesus is telling is a representation of our heavenly father. And he's waiting on the edge of the property or at the edge of town. And he's looking down the road. He's waiting, anticipating. And he says, thank God, my son is back. And he gets so excited. He throws this giant honking party. He gives his son a robe and and, and the official ring. And he yells, hey, kill the calf. Everybody, steak tonight. And he throws this big party. He's so excited. And the older brother, he starts watching. He starts having his own party. He books himself a semi-private pity party. And he's outside waiting, going, wait a minute, hold on a sec. Back this train up. I have never broken any of the rules. And nobody ever did that for me. I deserve that and more. I deserve that and more. And here's how the story plays out. The older son says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Someone owes me. I deserve more than this. I deserve better than that, Dad. And that's what we see so often. This mindset that comes up in people that says, I deserve a better paying job. If I can't get a better paying job, I don't want to work. I I, I just rather do nothing. If I can't get a job that I deserve... I deserve more benefits. I deserve a vacation. I deserve a better cell phone. Ten years old kids are coming up and they're saying, I want a better phone. I need a better phone. Everyone else has got a better phone. I need a better phone. Why don't I have a better phone? I deserve more. This ungratefulness mindset. One of the nine, not the one. Now, do you hear yourself in here at all? Because I know that I hear myself here at different times. And I don't want to live like that. You see, I don't, I don't really like my job, or I don't really like my house, I don't really like my hair, I don't really like, I don't get any of the breaks. Things never go my way. And what we need to do for the rest of our time is to learn how to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. How do we do that? How do we go from, from being entitled to identifying it? I can see it. I can feel it. Yeah, that's me. I am like that sometimes. How do I go from being entitled to being grateful? How do we cultivate that attitude of gratitude? We're going to decide to turn our blessings into praise. We're going to make a decision. It's a choice. As I identify everything that comes from God, every blessing that he gives me, I am going to decide to turn back 
to Jesus, and I'm going to turn that blessing into an opportunity to praise. So we sang this last Sunday, if you were here. It says, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And I would, I would sing that for you, but if I did, you would not praise God. So I'm not going to sing that for you. But every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. This is a strategy. Why is this so important? Because every blessing I don't turn back to praise turns into pride. I deserve this. I had this coming to me. I'm worthy of this, right? I deserve more and I want it now. It's pride and it's entitlement. And here's the real kicker. Okay? Not only does it not honor God, not only does it not um, build the relationships the way I would like to build them, it makes me miserable at the same time. Every blessing, every good thing, God, you are the giver of all good gifts. I will pause, I will stop, I will give you a moment of my time to just say thanks, to praise, to honor you, to give you credit, and then I'm going to take that attitude and I'm going to cultivate, I'm going to grow, I'm going to feed that attitude of gratitude, and I'm going to do it intentionally. So when the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to his friends who, who live in the city of Philippi, he said it this way, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He says that whatever the circumstances, if I'm healthy, if I'm not. If I've got a lot of money, if I don't. If I like my job, if I don't. If I've got a lot of hair, if I don't. (laughs) Whatever I learned, whatever I have learned, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And he says, I know how to get through. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. This is something that you Learn. This is a mindset. This is a way that you train your mind. It's a skill set. You adjust your heart, your attitude, your spirit. You have learned. It is a technique. It is a dance move. It is a technique of spiritual warfare. And what's that secret? I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. This is a learned something. It doesn't just happen. It is a skill that must be developed. By nature, most of us We're just not very grateful. We forget. We assume. By nature, we are not. We are sinners and we are bent towards selfishness. It's just what we do. As King Solomon, king, wise, wise king, and he was looking back over life and he's discerning discerning the patterns and the the complexities and he was writing kind of an expose of life. And that expose that he wrote was called Koheleth. You've probably heard it called by a different name. You've probably heard it called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a Latin transliteration of the Greek. Solomon writes under a pseudonym, and that pseudonym is Koheleth, which means teacher or assembler. And he's using that person to muse over life and its mysteries, and he declares his understanding better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Better what God has put before you than roving around and hoping for something more. Better the blessings that God has put right here than longing for what I wish I had, but don't. 
Now add that idea to what Solomon also wrote in Proverbs. He said, the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Anyone who's ever had a little turmoil knows what that's all about. The next time you say, I'm sick of my car, instead you choose, decide a different perspective. You say, thank you, God, that I have a car. Thank you that I am within the top 3 to 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. I have personal transportation. The complaint and the gratitude can be equally true, but you Decide what would you rather have your mind linger on? From which would you rather draw your inspiration for living? Yeah, my house is always a mess. God, I thank you that I am blessed with a family and with friends who can come in and enjoy this house. My house, too small. No, I'm choosing. I'm going to decide. I'm going to say, God, thank you. I got a toilet, I got a furnace. I got running water, and the running water is inside the house, but in the pipes. I am thankful, God, for the blessings that you have given me. I don't really like my job or the people that are there. Whatever it is that you, that you just can't, it just strikes you as being unfortunate for you. Instead, we choose to say, God, I am so thankful. In a world where so many people are searching for jobs, desperate to have a job, thank you that you've given me a job. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for the relationships that I've got. And not just thank you for the material things, right? But, oh God, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, that continues to make a difference in my life every day. Thank you that you took a person who deserved. You ever thought about what you deserve? You know what I deserved? Hell. I deserve death. I deserve eternal separation from God. That's what I've earned. I've worked hard to earn that right. Thank you, God, that you, did not, that you did not leave me there. You did something for me that I know I never, ever deserved. Thank you, God, for forgiving and transforming me and to continue to transform this person right here. Thank you, God, for all of the blessings that you continue to send. Pray with me. Oh, God, forgive us for our habits of ungratefulness. And have mercy on us and that spirit of entitlement that worms its way in. Change us, O oh God, that we refocus those complaints. When, when those come in, let us refocus on how you have blessed us beyond what we deserve. God, help us to see those things that, those people who are truly without so that we can understand how much we really have. And God, to be grateful just for what we have and most of all for who you are and for who you have given us. God, forgive our ingratitude. Transform us. Set us free once again to delight in offering our gratitude to you and to those around us, to those whom you love. God, help us to be the one, and not just to feel gratitude, but to show it, to show it to you and to show it to those people that you have given us, the ones that you love. God, help us to turn every blessing you pour out into praise, to thank you for what you have done, to thank you for what you are doing. And God, with your help, we will choose to be the one, the one who sees the gift, is thankful for the gift, and is not afraid to share our thankfulness with the giver 
and even with those who are nearby. May we not be people who have forgotten the virtue of gratitude. Because gratitude is so tied to our contentment as well. May we, may we be content in who you are and what you have done for us and through us. I gotta pray that this message would sink in for us that yeah, you would speak to us, but that you would also be gracious and speak through us, that we might be part of making this world the kingdom of God, that we would be able to delight and display in what you have done for us and through us and in us. Be at work in my life. Be at work in the lives of my friends here this morning. Jesus, I pray. Amen.